Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Met, did the Mets get I sold? Just, I don't know. I mean, do I, I, I just heard. You heard what? I heard from a little birdie. Uh, you know you know a lot of finance people. Are I, they really getting sold? I, I, I. I heard. Don't start I, stumbling now. I are heard, they going to get sold? I heard that it was. You were walking the hole singing it today. I was asking. Mets are, gonna, Mets are sold. I wasn't. I wasn't are saying. Are the Mets going to get sold? I was asking. I heard from someone who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Somebody important. Very important. Somebody no. with deep pockets, deep enough to buy the Mets. I think it could be happening. <laughs> It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Wednesday, December the 4th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. And the best way to get the show is on Apple Podcasts. If you could subscribe there and leave me a review, it'd be greatly appreciated. Uh, welcome uh, to the broadcast, everyone. Hope everybody's doing well. Of course, you heard Tiki Barber from earlier this morning and... I remember I got a call early this morning about that clip. I wasn't listening live, and uh, you know, there were you know the person I was talking to was like, "Hey, you know, the Mets were sold." I'm like, "What? The Mets were sold?" I'm like, "Who told you that?" I'm like, "Tiki Barber," and I, I laugh because I'm like, "Ugh, too much talk radio early in the morning." I'm like, "What are the odds that Tiki Barber actually knows what he's talking about?" And lo and behold, he actually did, uh, with his connections in the financial community. And as the the day went on. It was uh, it was announced through the Mets, through the uh, Sterling Equities, the Sterling Partners, that uh, there'll be a transition period where the Wilpons will be transitioned out. Steve Cohen will be the majority owner, 
And a new horizon for Mets baseball is upon us. How soon, we don't know. And joining us in just a little bit, the person that I thought of first when the news came out about the Mets' potential ownership change, Howard Megdell, author of the book Will Pond's Folly. Uh, he's writing over at Forbes, had an article earlier today about some of his skepticism about whether this is actually going to happen or not. But uh, Howard will join us as we try to unpack this. And Howard joins me tonight. And as we're doing this segment, uh, which I recorded a little earlier, news is coming out. Mike Puma had some news, and then there's news from Forbes. And uh, I think we did a pretty good job, Howard and I, uh, figuring out you know, how to present the information from what what's out there right now as best as possible. Uh, as I don't want to pretend that this is a financial show, nor that I'm even an expert on this stuff, because I'm not. But uh, we tried to do our best here on that and provide you with some analysis. Of course, there was some baseball news as well. Zach Wheeler, the topic of conversation so far through the hot, early parts of the hot stove, is now a Philadelphia Philly. And we'll get into that as well. And uh, all this today, as I thought maybe we'd be able to, and I knew things were heating up, but I thought we'd be able to kind of unwind. We took Thanksgiving week off and uh, and maybe get to Sunday and do a podcast on Sunday. And, and what I had planned completely got blown up. So here we are on this Wednesday, a few days earlier, and, and I'm glad to, to be here. So let me start with the whole ownership situation. And I think there's always been a misunderstanding about this show and my thought process and why I don't go and outwardly criticize the Will Ponds for how they do business. Because I've always prided myself on this show being about realism, being about what is, not what I want to be or the fantasy that I want to be. And I'm always of the belief that it's not my job or not my right to demand people to sell their private property. I can make recommendations and I could say this is probably, if I were in their shoes, what I would do. But to say sell the team or the commissioner should get involved and force them to sell. You know, there was a time 10 years ago, and Howard will bring that up later, where there was definitely a reason for baseball under the Constitution to take the team away. And even though they took it away from Frank McCourt, I know there were differences between McCourt about how McCourt uh, basically took the, you know, the team and used it for his personal piggy bank versus the debt services that the Wilpons put against the Mets and the amount of debt they had against the team. Both are violations, and I'm probably bastardizing this conversation a little bit. Both are violations of the MLB Constitution for different reasons. The reason why the Wilpons is still around and Frank McCord is not is Bud Selig owes a ton to Fred Wilpon and, and Bud Selig becoming commissioner. Uh, Fred Wilpon, among others, had a lot to do with that. So you got to go all the way back to collusion in the 80s. We could probably do multiple shows and get people who have studied this and been involved with this at a higher level than I'll ever be. Uh, but this all starts back during collusion and Bud Selig taking over and Fred Wilpon supporting that. And, and Bud certainly paid back Fred Wilpon. Now, Bud's gone. Uh, but Rob Manfred was part of, uh, of of Bud's cabinet, so to speak. And I have my doubts that Manfred is uh, is all that different from Bud Selig. But uh, that's why, you know, one of the things I was going to say was 
the Wilpons will never go above the luxury tax cap, not just because from a standpoint of cash flow and money, they probably don't want to be there because that's going to be a tough way for them to survive and finance uh, that kind of payroll. But I also think that that Fred has always been a hardliner when it comes to doing things the MLB way. When there used to be, uh, you know, not a hard slot, but a recommended slot on the MLB draft, Mets never went above that. They didn't want to be chastised by the commissioner's office for going outside the lines and overpaying on draftees back when it wasn't, you know, mathematical where, okay, this slot is X number of dollars. So uh, there's a lot of reasons to criticize the Wilpons, but everybody used to say, well, why don't you criticize them? What are you, a shill? You're trying to be a, a Pollyanna? That never was the case. It wasn't real. Going out there and demanding every show and whining about why aren't the Mets signing Anthony Rendon and Jarrett Cole and every big free agent. Well, you know, no team, even the Yankees, are going to do that anymore. I mean, teams are looking at the luxury tax cap and saying, well, you don't really want to go too far above that. Now, whether that's negotiations or policy that, you know, internally baseball is doing through the commissioner's office to say, hey, let's be careful as we head into some labor negotiations over the next couple of years. That's a whole nother story. But I never believed that was the way to do this show. I was like, okay, this is what the owners are. This is how they run their operations. Uh, It's not ideal, but let's see how the team could win within these parameters. Let's deal with realism. Now, if you ask me, are these the owners that you want running the New York Mets? The answer would never be that it would be the Wilpons. They wouldn't be the guys I'd choose. I'll tell you what, I would prefer Jim Dolan to be the owner of the Mets because you knew that the cash flow would be better. whole other set of issues might come from that. but And, and that, that was not, at one point, Cablevision tried to buy the Mets, so that wasn't all that far off from happening. So it never was about me supporting the Wilpons. Now that it looks like, and and Howard will come on and tell you why he's still a little skeptical that this will happen, because this happened before with David Einhorn, and Fred Wilpon weaseled out of that when he saw that he was going to lose the club. I think the difference here is this. I think Fred Wilpon's 83 years old. He's 10 years older, 10 years wiser. I think he's seen his son in action. And I think Jeff, just in the modern game of baseball, Jeff and his father are in a deep end of the pool that they're just not capable of competing in. Jeff, as well-intentioned of wanting to win as he may be, and I think that that's something that I've heard people say that doesn't get talked about enough. It's not that Jeff doesn't want to win. Maybe the fact that he wants to win so bad and that he's as much a fan as you and I are clouds his ability to maybe run an organization the right way. I think Fred is very old school and idealistic. And I think in the modern game of sports, family-owned businesses like what the Mets are just quite simply aren't sustainable. And the Dodgers are owned by by an investment group. Uh, That's the kind of owners that you're going to see in sports going forward. Bud Selig was a used car salesman that bought the Milwaukee Brewers and and built that up and he built that into a really nice career as the commissioner and became extremely wealthy but you're not going to see an entrepreneurial individual unless they have some serious serious money and a lot of that comes from the uh venture capital private equity world now uh own teams now the yankees you could say are a family business but the yankees turned themselves basically into an equity firm 
when George Steinbrenner foresaw how powerful the Yankee brand name was back in the 90s, and they won those, you know, world back-to-back-to-back World Series in a row and and took a brand that was always strong, that was flattening out, and they breathed life into it, leveraged it, and grew it. And the Mets never did that. And I remember we were talking a couple of podcasts ago about what would happen if the 2000 Mets beat the 2000 Yankees. Well, things might have been different. Things might have been different for the Wilpons. Things might have been different for the Mets brand. It didn't happen. And now here we are. So that's why I think it's different. I, I just don't think a family business can compete in this modern game of sports. Just can't. It's just getting more expensive, more difficult. And let's face it, these guys, as much as they're passionate about baseball, and as much as their ego is going to take a hit, and as much as this toy that is a fantasy of probably everybody in this audience, myself included, we would love to be in the position those guys are and run a team. They want to have a comfortable estate going forward. They want their kids to have the same life that they that they have. They don't want to go out and get regular jobs because they bankrupted themselves over a baseball team. That's what this is about. And if the reports by Mike Puma are true that they're going to keep control of SMY, they're still going to have their hand in the game of sports. And they might be on the side. And I, I believe the regional cable networks, that bubble is going to burst. And again, I'm not a financial guy and I'm not qualified to get deep into the end of the pool of this. What I do think is with cable cord cutting and uh, the valuations that have been crazy over regional sports networks, almost like monopoly money, um, you know, that's bubble's going to burst. But even if and when it does, there's still going to be, that's going to be where the game is now. Electronic digital viewing media is going to be where the money is. It's not, I don't even know if it's going to be about what money you can make about people getting into the ballpark. Because opening up the ballpark it, in of itself, bringing employees in, the overhead there, I wonder, you know, on a normal night in April when it's raining and cold and damp and nasty and 15,000 bodies show up and maybe stay for five innings, how much money could you make? You probably lose the money from the gate that night. So they're going to stay on the profitable end of the business. For Cohen, look, this is a medallion. I mean, it's probably a medallion that uh, from an investment as a guy who's worth uh, upwards of $13 billion, probably not how he'd want to spend $2.6 billion, not how his investors would want to spend he, for him to spend their money. But let's face it, when you're rich and you have a passion for things, uh, you can't bury the money with you. You can certainly leave it to your family. But there's a lot more stupid things people have done with money than spend $2.6 billion on a baseball team, especially a baseball team that you grew up rooting for and from all accounts, his family's very passionate about. So, and it, it opens up, not that he needs it doors opened up, but and, and this is why I believe the Wilpons held on to it for as long as they did. Owning a sports franchise in this town or any town opens up so many doors business-wise um, that I think that that's also a big benefit to that. So I think there's a lot of intrinsic value to these sports franchises. Again, I'm not a guy that's an expert on this. I'm just somebody who looks at this logically, someone who knows a little bit about business, uh, somebody who has talked to people that have dived into this, guys like Howard, and looking at it. Is this a good day for the Mets? Look, any kind of owner coming in that comes with a fresh perspective, that has cash flow, 
that is able to put them, as Joel Sherman uh, wrote earlier, in the same echelon as the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox. That's a good day for Mets fans. But we all have to be honest, and we all know that winning, sustainable winning and winning baseball games is not just about spending money. What has hurt the Mets is their infrastructure. And more specifically, not that they don't have money to spend. Obviously, they do. Some of that money is going to things that are non-baseball related. It's the fact that because of their cash constraints, they really aren't able to do proper financial planning. Uh, you general managers, and this is this is pretty much fact because multiple people have said this, and this is sourced information that even when Sandy Alderson was the GM, he would not know what he had to spend. Uh, on transactions, you'd have to probably go transaction by transaction, and it slowed things down and obviously put the Mets in a position where um, they probably lost out on not necessarily A or B free agents, but be you know fringe roster decisions that make a big impact in a baseball season because of the way that they manage their finances. So that in and of itself is going to be the big difference on why this is a great change. Uh, I don't feel good about anybody losing their franchise, but I'm not crying for the Wilpons. They're walking away with a lot of money. And before we celebrate, before you celebrate, before we start spending money that may or may not be there, look, um, it's changed from hour to hour. I mean, earlier it was like, well, there's five years that the Wilpons will be still running things, and nobody knows how quickly Steve Cohen's money will, will make an impact. Uh, but now uh, Mike uh, Ozanian from Forbes is saying, hey, he's got sources that say Cohen right away is going to have uh, more than 50% uh, ownership in this team, and the spending could start right away, and he's not going to sit around for five years and 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 wait, and, and essentially labeled, not the in these words, these are my words, the Will Ponds as figurehead. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see uh, how that all turns out, how that all pans out. So uh, that's the big news. I think that this will be fluid. I think this will continue to uh, change and develop. I think it'll be a conversation that we'll be having more than just tonight and and more than just with Howard. Uh, but other than that, I mean, that's where you're at. This is a new era in Mets history. And if let's think big here, let's think big. If the Mets are now going to be not only in the echelon of the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, but have the richest owner in the league with his valuation, a guy who spent $150 million on art. That's an exciting thing. This is a fan base that's passionate. You saw how they're ready to explode. Look at some of those homestands in August when they were making the run for the wild card. Uh, Look at how passionate and how crazy uh, this town got in 2015. Uh, this can be a jewel. And guess what? They start developing, and I guarantee you the Will Ponds are going to have their hands in that. Uh, the surrounding area of City Field, making it really a good destination where you could get the fringe people to come to ball games a little bit more. So that place is packed nightly. You know, you want some of the bandwagon people there to gr- bring some energy to the ballpark. You know, it's an embarrassment how bad the surrounding area of City Field is in New York, that they're basically in a in a dumpster, it's a jewel of a ballpark, dumped in the middle of a junkyard. It's been always a big complaint of mine. And I know there's a lot more to that than than just location. I know understand there's more to building around that and what have you. Um, 
there's so much here that if if this is run properly and they can leverage and they did not leverage the 2015 uh, pennant run like I had hoped, if they can leverage that passion and build that brand and make big moves, and it's not just about getting big free agents, but about building a real good, sustainable financial foundation and a culture where they're constantly going for it. And they have been trying to go for it the last couple of years. And that's why I like the hire of Brody Van Wagenen because I thought he brought that mindset. Um, the sky's the limit. And this could become a lot of fun. Uh, you could see, you know, L.A. East here. And I'll tell you what, don't be surprised. And, and again, it's too soon. And this is, again, best case scenario. Don't be surprised that they start to take a little bit of the buzz away from the Yankees. And the most important thing about this transition is it takes away some of that negativity that the media has towards the Wilpons. And the coverage will change with Cohen, at least at the beginning. Now, you're going to have, and you already see some of the twits in the media bringing up that he was, you know, fine for insider trading and he's not a great guy because he's one of these, hedge, you know, piggish uh, venture capital hedge fund guys. You know, if you make a lot of money, you're going to be doing some things that aren't the best. I've heard, you know, they don't, the culture of, of his company is not conducive for women working there. Well, guess what? That's been a Wall Street thing because it is a bit of a uh, a guy's club. And, and, and that's something that, you know what, uh, that's every private equity firm. And I'm sure those are things as we evolve as a society that will change. I mean, so, I mean, to, to, to pick at these things, you're, it's like stating the obvious. I'm not condoning it. I'm stating the obvious here. Uh, you know, Wall Street, private equity, finance sector, those are difficult businesses for anybody, man, woman going in, unless you have a shark mindset. And that's what you're getting. You're getting a guy who's a shark that's used to winning and winning big and playing in the deep end of the pool. And that's going to change a lot of things around here. It's going to change a mindset. And that's what's been missing. It's going from the idealism and the old school vision of Fred Wilpon you know, get your brown paper bag and go sit in the bleachers at Ebbets Field and have a good time to excellence and winning and getting to the next level. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, Howard Megdell, he's going to be joining me. Howard Megdell, uh, author of the book, Will Ponce Folly, will be joining me. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, Steve Cohn as the potential new owner of the New York Mets. Maybe get a little bit of Zach Wheeler. And we will talk about Zach Wheeler before this podcast is up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Cohen was already a minority investor in the New York Mets. And as Evan Novi Williams, our reporter, reminded us, there has been talk in the past that he would increase his stake. Why do you think the Mets and Steve Cohen are engaging in further discussions to increase the stake now? You know, Scarlett, there are a handful of teams in the league where the competition among the owners is as acute as the competition between the teams. And Steve Cohen will do a a stunning job with the Mets. Uh, There were stories today here in New York about the Yankees and the Yes Network working in partnership with Amazon to start streaming some of their baseball games. It's important that the Mets have an owner capable to do the same, to stay competitive in this marketplace with the Yankees, and Steve Cohen is a brilliant business person. Uh, he's a passionate New Yorker. He's a passionate Mets fan. And he's wanted to own and, and control a baseball team for a very long time. And it's no surprise that he picked the Mets, his hometown team. 
With regard, Leo, so with regards to, I guess, the potential uh, profitability and growth of this team, uh, obviously buying a, a team in a major market like New York City uh, certainly gives it an edge up over other teams. But when you look at the, the trend line in general for Major League Baseball, uh, is the fan base, uh, is, is the, I guess, the trend line for the fan base, is that trending in a way that's going to be supportive of a valuation of $2.6 billion or whatever uh, this could be uh, valued at once we know the details of the deal? I think in this marketplace, it's it's probably a, a fair price. This is New York, after all, the biggest media market in the United States. We saw the sale of the Dodgers a few years ago out in Los Angeles at roughly the same valuation. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm not skeptical is because Steve is, as I said, just a consummate business person who will bring both uh, insights to the way the sport is evolving to the team management. Uh, sadly, the Mets lost a, an amazing athlete today to the Phillies, a young man named Zach Wheeler, who went to the Phillies for five years and $118 million. That's not the kind of number that the current ownership could have matched. Mm. And so it's important for the fans of the Mets to see in Steve Cohen, somebody who will stay competitive with the Yankees out on the West Coast, stay competitive with the likes of the, of the Los Angeles Dodgers, with whom they'll compete directly in the, in the National Baseball League. We're back, and joining me, old friend of the show, it's been a while, it's been a couple of years, Howard Megdell, author of many books, at Howard Megdell on Twitter, and uh, you know, on a day where just about five or six hours ago, we heard that the Mets are entering, not tomorrow, but very soon, a new era of ownership. Who better to talk to than the author of Wolfon's Folly, uh, Howard Megdell. Howard, uh, interesting afternoon here. Uh, great turnaround. Great to you know speak to you. And the fact that you know five hours after this historic news, I'm talking to the guy that you know for a long time was the only voice out there in the in the marketplace, letting everybody know what the problems were with the New York Mets and their finances. So uh, welcome to the program again. And uh, crazy times right now, huh? Uh, so I'm glad to be back. I, your definitive uh, statement is one thing that has me a little gun shy because I remember you and I having this conversation eight years ago when it was all said and done and a new Mets owner in a Mets hat was in the owner's box and David Einhorn, I mean, much further alone even than this. And that didn't come to pass for reasons I've, I talked about in the book. And there's a long trail of people who thought they had a deal with Fred Wolfon that didn't turn out to have a deal with Fred Wolfon. So all I'm saying is, there's obviously substantial news and a lot to unpack here, but let's just say nothing signed, and even when something's signed, sometimes things can go awry. Absolutely, and you point out, as you wrote an article earlier today in Forbes, will the Wilpons really sell the Mets, a history lesson, and, and you mentioned David Einhorn and how after uh, Fred Wilpon uh, struck a deal with him, he got some cold feet, and really went to Commissioner Bud Selig and made it almost impossible for Einhorn, who wanted to take over the team, to mm -hmm. uh, enact any of the clauses that that deal uh, were part of that deal. He, here's something different, You know, It wasn't like Einhorn was some Trojan horse. Einhorn wasn't sitting there pretending that wasn't the end game. The, the idea for one person to pay $200 million for a, uh, for a minority stake 
was nothing less than the opportunity to be able to take over what was a distressed asset in many ways at that time. So just to be clear, Einhorn uh, was very open about that from the start. That was the essence of it. But let's not forget, uh, and I pointed this out in the piece of Forbes, it's not just this time. You know, the uh, purchase of uh, the full share of the Mets from Nelson Doubleday uh, ended up in recriminations and uh, legal battles, and that just seems to follow around what the Wilpons are doing. That's a great point because many don't realize, and I mean, you could just Google this and look it up, that there was accusations by uh, the Doubleday camp that Bud Selig and Major League Baseball basically deflated the value of the Mets at a time when the Red Sox yeah. were sold for $700 million. That's a bargain now when you think about that. Um, you know, back in two, you know, only 18, I, fact, only 18 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Only, <laughs> only 18 well, years what about, ago. I, listen, when Doubleday and Wilpon bought the team in 1980, it was $21.1 million which was considered an amazing sum at the time. And, of course, now it looks like pocket change. Not, sadly, my pocket change, but apparently no. some people. No, not, not at all. And, and, look, it does feel a little different now, and I'll tell you why. I think we all know Fred Wilpon has been the master of kicking the debt can down the curb, using the banks, using Major League Baseball. I mean, give him credit, all the creative financial resources that are at people's disposable, especially people with money and connections, he's been able to mm-hmm. use. But what it feels mm-hmm. different is this, Howard. I think he's got to see the handwriting on the wall. To own a sports franchise in 2019, even you know just 10 years later than, than when maybe the last time you and I were talking, it just takes such a considerable amount of money. It takes VC, private equity money. Uh, it's not like – not to be funny. It's not like you could be a used car salesman, become the commissioner of baseball, and own the Milwaukee Brewers. I know that happened, but that was in the 1970s. You can't be – just this entrepreneurial family-owned business anymore. And, not, and absolutely not, not different set of anymore. financial imperatives. Absolutely yeah. true. And, and and so, you know, the real question that I have, and I have many questions out of this, I'm going to keep digging on it, obviously, uh, is the stuff that we don't know, which is why now? I, you know, if – and I spoke about this a little bit, but you think about it. It has been a recurring theme that Fred Wilpon wants control of the Mets. He wants to be able to pass it on to Jeff. Jeff wants to be hands-on. Jeff has been hands-on. And so if there's been some emotional change where the Wilpons say, geez, we don't want this anymore, uh, the idea that there would be a five-year period where Fred remains the control person and Jeff remains the COO wouldn't make a lot of sense. Uh, you, you know, if, if you want to use an, uh, an analog, we have one right here in town. The Brooklyn Nets recently changed hands. Well, Mikhail Prokhorov decided to sell. He sold a minority stake to Joe Tsai that had the option of becoming a majority stake. Why does that matter? Well, Prokhorov had clearly checked out. Prokhorov used to be at games all the time. Uh, he was never a Brooklyn Nets team. You just simply never saw him. And ultimately, Josiah was able to exercise that option 18 months early. So this has a very different feel to it. And you can't help but wonder if that's the case, if they're looking to hold on for as long as they can, even as they sell. Well, what is the financial domino that is yet to fall? Is there an issue with their real estate holdings? Is there... 
Were they victimized by a third Ponzi scheme? You know, these are the questions that obviously will be resolved in the coming weeks and months, uh, but will tell us a lot more about when you say this one feels different. Well, how much different has to do with either how motivated they are to sell emotionally, which at first glance doesn't seem to be very, and then the great unknown, which is how much are they motivated to do so financially? And that's the other real question. Absolutely. Howard Megdell, Will Ponce follow the author of that book, many others, uh, at, at Howard Megdell on Twitter. Now, there was a tweet uh, just a little bit earlier, and depending on when the listeners are downloading this and listening to this, you know, obviously more information could come out. But Mike Pumas said the expectation, and I wonder, because you, you would know better than I on this, that uh, the Mets are going to, uh, the Will Ponce will maintain control of SNY. Now, I know they leveraged SNY. You know, that was part of the book that you wrote. Um, maybe that's the end game for them. Maybe they're like, hey, look, this owning this team, we're Mets fans, we love it. You know, this is hard work. Jeff is probably realizing, man, this is this COO deal running baseball team, not easy today. And and, and the media is unforgettable. It's not. I mean, today. look, even the most today. narcissistic person. <laughs> when, when has it ever been easy for Jeff? <laughs> I mean, but you know what? You, know, you and anything. I can talk. You know, it's easy. I'll say this, and, and I'm not defending the guy. You and I, you know, right. I do this little thing, and, and you, you, you've opined on stuff. If we were sitting in the GM's chair right now, and I love how, you know, even those fans, it's a totally different ball game. You know this. You've been pretty close to big wigs in, in baseball. The, sure. The margin, I, I, the, the, the chair I, I, gets I'm hot I'm not very arguing quick. that it would be easy for anyone. I'm arguing that even among everyone, it has proven to be uniquely difficult for Jeff Wilpon. But that, that's a yes. different conversation. And and maybe SNY is the end game. I mean, the, that's the regional sports network, big money. I question if the bubble's going to burst on all these regional sp- these crazy dollars that somehow I don't think they're worth with cable uh, cord cutting and and mm-hmm. and all the things that go on out there. But if they're going to maintain control of that, maybe they're just saying, hey, look, I, I, you got to worry about the family fortune. You know, Jeff Wilpon doesn't want to mm-hmm. get to a nine to five job in ten years because he's broke. Believe me, once you've been living that high life. I don't know, you know, maybe you have a job for him somewhere at one of your publications, but, um, you know, you got to yeah, we'll be in family touch, fortunes but... at stake. And, and maybe this is the, the out where they could stay rich uh, very comfortably, stay close to baseball, and maybe make more money than they're making now. Listen, billions of dollars as a golden parachute that could help wipe out their debt would, would be enormous. And so you could always have made that argument, though. You could have made that argument two years ago, four years ago, six years ago. The question is, why now? Why why is now the tipping point? And that gets back to the question we don't know. But let's talk about SNY, because that has always been a really interesting uh, set of circumstances. For listeners who don't know, not only are the Wilpons majority shareholders uh, in the New York Mets as part of Sterling Equities, uh, essentially the company by which they do business, they were also uh, are also the majority shareholder of SNY, uh, a company. Uh, incidentally, uh, built first with some money they received from Bernie Madoff. But that's neither here nor there. Point is, they own that. And so what is SNY worth? Well, SNY's value uh, for whatever there may be in terms of a bubble uh, coming or not coming, and neither of us can tell the future, uh, although certainly there are plenty of people, not just you, who think that is a possibility. But SNY's value is tied into the fact that it broadcasts Mets games. Not just that it broadcasts Mets games, it broadcasts Mets games at a very, very cut rate uh, 
annual um, rights fee that they pay, which is the wolf ponds negotiating with themselves, you know, as, um, uh, as uh, Inspector Reno style from Casablanca. Um, it gives them the opportunity, and they did, to lock in a very low rate between 68 and $83 million uh, escalating ever so slightly over time, and they locked that in for a long-term contract. So what does that mean? That means a couple of things. Number one, I hear the Mets being valued at $2.6 billion. It's really interesting. Which is higher than what Forbes had them. It's higher than the Forbes higher than what Forbes, Higher mission. than what Forbes had them, but also – where is that value at $2.6 billion if – because, again, remember why the Dodgers were worth so much money when they sold. They were worth so much money when they sold because they weren't locked into a long-term TV deal. In fact, in an effort to force McCord out, Bud Selig denied them the opportunity to sign a cash infusion deal with Fox Sports at the time that McCord was then unable to make payroll and went bankrupt. Bud Selig, who did not – afford that same best interest of baseball when it came to uh, how the New York Mets were operating relative to TV. And he'll let you know. Now, if you remember, not to interrupt you, Bud Selig reminded you that you were wrong during that final press conference at at Citi Field a couple of years back. I remember that press conference. But you got lectured by Bud Selig. Many people I remember Selig declined to answer my question or tell me why, but he simply yelled and said, no, it's not true. So anyway, that's... (laughs) That that was Bud Selig's uh, way when he was challenged, and that's the reality of it. But leaving that aside, the question is now, well, is Steve Cohen buying for something valued at $2.6 billion, um, something without its most valuable asset, the TV rights? The TV rights has been what has driven the boom in not just the values of MLB franchises, but of major league franchises across the sports spectrum. That is hard to believe. However, what's the converse of that? If he doesn't have some sort of opt-out of the current Mets deal with SNY, um, or if he does have that opt-out, rather, then SNY would become far less valuable. And, and I don't mean to take away from – I have very good friends and colleagues who work at SNY, but the value of SNY as a financial asset is not built into you – know, um, into their nightly programming, it's built into having the Mets live. And there aren't a lot of other live sports on there. Uh, the UConn women, obviously, uh, playing basketball uh, is significant, but it's not the cash cow or anything approaching it that the New York Mets 162 games a year are uh, value-wise. And so are we in a situation where, where Steve Cohen is able to buy the Mets for um, 80, 80% of the match, it's a valuation of $2.6 billion, and then be able to sell those rights and the Wolfons end up with SNY? Okay, maybe, but then SNY is going to be worth much, much less. All of which is to say, when I say at, in the Forbes article that what we don't know at this point is arguably more interesting than what we already do know, that is just one of many moving parts, the way the Mets SNY is disentangled. Uh, that, again, has meaning not just for uh, the Mets, for SNY, not just for the Wilpons and for Steve Cohen, but even how capitalized a post-deal Steve Cohen is when it comes to operating the Mets. That's a great point. And, I mean, look, let's dare to dream, because I'm looking at Joel Sherman 
just uh, tweeting out, you know, here's a guy that, I mean, nobody knows what he's truly worth. He's it's his own money. It's his private money. You know, some yeah. say 13 billion, 9 billion. Look, 9 billion, 13 billion, it's all a lot of money. It's more money than you and I are ever going to see. And, and, and that's a lot of money to throw around. And uh, I mean, the thing is this, I don't know if you watched this. There's actually a show called on Showtime called Billions, and the character oh, sure. Damian Lewis is based off of loosely, but based off of Steve Cohen. And part of that show, there was a scandal in one of the early seasons of insider trading. So Steve Cohen's uh, firm was indicted. Uh, their family office now they can't take outsider money. Yeah. I believe Maybe that might have been part of the SEC deal. So there's a, a sketchy underground on all this. I guess there's two components to it. Number one, it shows you that this is a guy that's willing to go to any lengths to get what he wants. And uh, mm-hmm. you don't succeed in that in that private equity world without being pretty ruthless. At a, at a, not that New York State real estate is not, but Fred Wilpon, I think, comes from a different generation than what a Steve Cohen would be in a different, uh, a different world. Um, and then you got to wonder, would MLB not approve him? Now, he's approved as a minority owner. Does he have to right. get approved by as a majority owner? That's a different story. He, and, he does, uh, but it's a very good sign for his prospects as a majority owner that having gone through the clearinghouse, he was approved on the minority side. Right. It, it's so, not a guarantee. As I've spoken to people about this before. It's not a guarantee, but it's obviously an extremely good sign. There's a reason why many, many majority owners were minority owners first. Just to give you an example, Bill DeWitt Jr., um, who is uh, now the majority owner, has been for 25, 26 years of the St. Louis Cardinals, was first a minority owner with the Texas Rangers. Yeah, and and that's, um, you know, look, uh, it's, a, it's, an old, it's a good old boys club, and sometimes getting approved, and I know Mark Cuban tried to get in there, and there was obvious reasons they didn't want him in there, and it, what's interesting with with this transition happening over five years, there's labor issues coming up. You know, Mets valued at 2.6 billion. I don't know if it would be wise to have some kind of chaos in the ownership ranks. If, if and this was announced, so it's not like this is just a rumor. It seems like there's, it's not just this smoke, this fire behind the smoke. This is pretty much, from what I understand. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, 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 Howard. No, the, this the, has been, the Mets have confirmed that these talks. The Mets have, have confirmed it, so. This is going to probably happen, and I don't think it would be in well, the league's best interest to mess around with this. The Magic with everything that going this on. is happening. This is this is clearly clearly in the midst of happening, but how far along it is, and whether it ultimately comes to pass, is the stuff that remains to be seen. Which is not to say that it won't happen, but merely to say that to say, well, this is definitely done, is absolutely a bridge too far. And you know, forgive my caution. I know, listen, I know everyone listening to this program wants to jump up and celebrate and play right. Celebration by Cool in the Gang as loud as you possibly can. I get all of that. And Happy Days are here again, you know, all of those things. And there'll be time for that if and when this comes to pass. It's just a very encouraging sign if you want there to be an ownership change, but it is not yet done. Yeah, and let's dare to dream here for the, those that are listening ha! that want to dream. Let's- Let's dare to dream right. that this does happen. And if Joel Sherman is correct, and this guy with $10 billion, uh in assets and, and comes from the private equity world, a, a world of, mm-hmm. you know, everybody wants to outdo the next person. It's very competitive. It's much, much like sports. 
sure. you might have an owner. You have the richest owner in the sport. You have an owner that could go eye to eye with the Yankees. Uh, mm-hmm. And you and I both know that building a team is not just the going out and getting the best free agents. It's about putting money into infrastructure. You outlined that hurt. in your, your book about the Cardinals. I mean, it's more so than ever. Because right. let's face it, Howard, even the teams like the Red Sox, the Yankees, they're putting a stop on saying, you know, pay, and this is part of it, probably co- definitely because of labor, $300 million, $350 million payrolls. They realize that mm-hmm. they can't just go out and get five Garrett, Garrett Gold. They can't. Uh, there needs to be well, a mixture. That's what I, makes the I would, Dodgers I would so good. say something different. I would say they realize that they don't have to. That's a very different thing. They don't want to they either. They, 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 so they want to make money no, Their too. revenues absolutely yeah. could support that. The, the, there's, there, listen, to answer your question, I'd answer it in two parts. One part is that what you could see happen is what happens – we talked a lot, I think about a lot of the time, the hinge point where MLB forced Frank McCord out and allowed Fred Wilpon to hobble along. And you look at the difference, and I, I don't know if there are people in the listening audience who think, well, geez, the Dodgers haven't won the World Series, so therefore uh, it's been a failure. Dodgers have no. won their division in dominant fashion and been to the playoffs and been to World Series, um, but been to the playoffs seven consecutive season. I mean, how, how you anyone compare who that says to the that. Mets. Yeah. Howard, anyone who says that, I mean, this is a, to- you just get the right to the tournament. I mean, you can't exactly right. criticize anybody. And, I I don't think well, anybody. But, but it's this- more than that. Everyone, oh, my, money can't guarantee anything. Well, here's what I'll tell you. The Yankees for about 20 years from 96 to 2015, by easily outspending the rest of the league. And I don't say that in, um, uh, you know, as a negative, I say that just flat. Well, it's a reality. They outspent everyone else, and most years by quite a lot. Were in the playoffs pretty much every year. So this idea that money can't guarantee anything, yeah, you could waste money if you really spot. tried. If if they yeah. were to sign people off the street and give them twenty million dollars, but the reality is, if you spend more than everyone else on major league quality players, you're probably going to the playoffs. And the Dodgers did the same thing for seven years in a row with the highest payroll. If you go back in the free agency era and you look at the teams who spent the most, they typically make it to the playoffs and plenty of them win the World Series. So you can actually guarantee quite a lot by doing so. All of which is to say that in a salary cap free league, a Steve Cohen who decides the Mets are going to spend more than everyone else is still in a position to dominate. And I'll say something else. There has been an enormous gap between what the Mets spend and the de facto salary cap that many owners around baseball have treated the luxury tax as, which is to say that even if the Mets don't do what the Dodgers did once their new owners, once Guggenheim Partners took over, if they merely spend like the other halves in baseball, like the Red Sox, like the Yankees, and the luxury tax is the new Mets payroll cap instead of whatever they've been at over the last few years pretending, oh, it's 150. Oh, well, you got to count David Wright's salary, even though we're getting most of it back from insurance. If they do that, a new owner would be a significant addition. And then if there's a phasing out of Jeff Wilpon's uh, ability to have a negative impact on the team's ability to make baseball moves, if baseball is returned more fully to the baseball ops department, 
then we're having a very different conversation about the efficiency of that money being spent as well. Now, we can play the other part of that, which is what's going to go on the next four or five years with – and I think you, you basically said it earlier. Could you be in, an, in a, a holding pattern, purgatory, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that 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 could be a problem, you know. Who knows about that? Yeah, and, but they're, they're, they've been in a holding pattern if, I, since December eleventh, two thousand eight. That's where they've been. They've been in a holding pattern where baseball ops doesn't know on Tuesday whether they're going to be able to spend the money they were told they could spend on Monday. And no, the Wolfhounds are capable of interfering at every turn. And they've been hamstrung financially by whatever out external factors ownership has had to deal with. So a holding pattern with a release date is a different, uh, a different thing than a life sentence. Uh, what, what my concern would be, if, I, if, if I'm the pessimistic Mets fan for a moment, my concern would be that by the time the Wilpons leave, by the time that would be over, that there's a CBA coming up, by the way, over the next couple of years. Right. And if the owners are able to win and institute a hard cap, you could foresee a situation where the Mets finally have the richest owner in baseball. And it's at the point where being in New York and having an obscenely wealthy owner is no financial advantage in precisely the way. <laughs> that you would, you would think, yeah, you would think exactly. In the right. garden doesn't help the Knicks. Right. I, I can't, I'll tell you what, uh, if there's, if we're, if we're looking at, and I find it funny how Rob Manfred and, and the story that came out about labor peace a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. he was he made a mm-hmm. quote saying, well, the Players Association wants to turn back, you know, the CBA 50 years. Well, no, they don't want to turn the CBA back 50 years because if exactly. they did, they're basically in de- they're based back to, uh, you know, you know, Kurt Flood, the well-paid slaves there, for lack of a better word. No, no disrespect if, meant in that, you if, know, if, uh, if you, the listeners, want to understand fully what's going on. Subscribe to Mark Normandin's pod, uh, um, newsletter where he talks about labor issues and he details this. And he's done fantastic work about this. But, yes, it was a wonderful instance of projection because uh, that's clearly and precisely what Rob Manfred is hoping to accomplish. Yeah, there'll be, there'll be no baseball. They'll have, if, if they really think they're going to get a salary cap, uh, there'll be no baseball, and I think – I think you're just seeing the beginning, and, and I know that this is not really tied to what we're talking about, but you know, a sale yeah. of a major franchise in the next couple of years with these valuations, uh, if you don't think the players association is looking at this closely, I mean, you're not, you're kidding yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the Mets. I mean, the Yankees are never going to get sold. The Yankees aren't going to get sold. The Dodgers have been. The Red Sox were many, many years ago. Uh, this is like the last big market team now. Uh, because the Cubs had their transition. This is the last yeah. big market team, unless something's going to happen in San Francisco. And uh, and look, if I'm the Players Association, I look at this. At one point, teams like the Phillies and the Giants, those were small market teams. So in a lot of ways, any team could become big market with the right moves. Right. Any team could be big market, any team could be small market if the owner yeah. is dedicated enough to playing three-card Monte. And no one's been more dedicated to doing that than the Wilpons. Yes, and and here's the thing. This is fact. I'm I'm, I'm I, I don't have it in front of me now, but I know I've read that. I think it was 2005. The Phillies actually got revenue sharing at one point, either 2004 mm-hmm. or 2005. And I, I probably yeah. could look it up 
but I just came to, and, and that just tells you all you need to know about, about that. Now, before I let you go, I have to ask you a baseball question because that's part of this whole thing here. So, you know, I'm, I'm torn on the Zach Wheeler stuff, and I understand the financial ramifications, but let's talk about this as a baseball move. I think if you look at the metrics, Howard, Zach Wheeler, when you look at all the advanced things that people look at, or, you know, uh, you know, uh, FIP, you know, soft contact, mm-hmm. all the things. Zach Wheeler is a top 15 pitcher in all of baseball. As a matter of fact, the Mets yeah. have four pitchers in the top 25 when you look at them from wins above replacement. You throw Stroman in there. Um, now, it doesn't always feel like that with guys like Stroman and Wheeler and even Syndergaard, but that's fact. But I also mm-hmm. watched Wheeler pitch, and I saw a lot of games against the Braves where he was not an ace and against the Nationals. And, uh, you know, as of August, he had an ERA closer to five than he had to three. And mm-hmm. God bless him with this contract. You got Patrick Corbin, AAV, and I'm sure he's going to have a similar type of year with the Phillies. But I'll tell you, if you're going to invest in a risky pitching contract, I take the Grom over Wheeler. And thank God they signed the Grom early because I think the Grom might have left money on the table now as I'm looking at this pitching market. Um, and if you're going to have, and if you're going to have a second Robin to, you know, the Grom's Batman, not sure that it's Wheeler. I'm not sure it's not. I'm very well, torn on this. So I'm very let, torn. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this in a few ways, right? Okay. First of all, the Grom, we could say left money on the table, right? No, well, he took guaranteed money a little bit early, uh, and the Mets. And they've had this opportunity for years. Had a host of young pitching, they could have signed for even less money by signing them ahead of time. But that's not how the Mets do it. That's just not what they do. They're penny wise and pound foolish about their young players, and they end up either very occasionally paying more, or more likely, is what tends to happen, is sending them out the door and slamming them anonymously as they go, which is, of course, the Mets' way, and there's a long tradition of that. But there's a larger question. It's not Wheeler or not Wheeler. It's, if not Wheeler, then whom? This is a team that has an in-prime Jacob DeGrom. This is a team that had significant bats develop last year with Pete Alonzo, with Jeff McNeil. There's a, a basis of a team that won 86 games last year. And so this is sort of the way the Wilpons ownership group, when you talk about being stuck in a rut, this is how you've had them thinking. Any other team in baseball, just about 86 wins, Good young core. What are you trying to do to get to 96 and 106? How are you bridging that gap? What are you doing? And the answer nowhere would be we're going to take one of our starting pitchers, we're going to let him go for nothing, for nothing. They could have traded him in July, but they had this phantom playoff race. We're going to let him go for nothing, and we're going to replace him by taking out of our bullpen, which wasn't even good last year, and we're going to take Seth Lugo out of our bullpen, and he's going to be the new answer. And that, by weakening one area so that we can weaken another area even more, is how we get from 86 wins to what? I mean, there's no logic to it when you think big picture. Before you even get into the fact, this is a team – Many tens of millions of dollars beneath the luxury tax. This is a team that has been many tens of millions of dollars beneath the luxury tax for years. This is a team that could have taken not even all of the money it recouped 
from David Wright and Joanna Cespedes over the past few years. Not moving forward, just the past few years. Money they already know they have and turned around and invested that money in the 2020 team by taking a guy who's performed well for them and kept their starting pitching strong. And what have they done instead? They've let him go for nothing, and they've made it abundantly clear that it's not Wheeler as opposed to somebody else. It's Wheeler as opposed to what we have on hand. If that makes any sense in a baseball reality, I don't see it. I will leave you with this. So as you and I are talking, some more stuff came down. This is courtesy of Mike Puma oh, Post. Yeah. So yeah. it looks like there was a rift between Saul Katz and J- and Fred. And part of that yeah. was there was a lot of uh, comfortability with the idea of, of, of uh, Jeff Wilpon assuming control of the club once Fred is no longer involved. Among the possibilities <laughs> that were discussed, the source said, was turning over the club to Fred Wilpon's wife, Judy, before it was decided to negotiate with 63-year-old Cohen, a Mets fan who grew up on Long Island. Bloomberg reported right. Cohen staked this club could be as much as 80%. With a club valuation at a baseball record two point six billion dollars, um, it says here he would play the game at the highest level. This source, without a doubt, one of Je- uh, uh, Cohen's friends, Steve Cohen's friends, he would be good for Mets fans. So I don't know what this all means. This is again, you know, this is sourced information. You know, that's been reported before. I think Rich Vandermeer had it a couple of years ago in the Times that Fred Katz was not feeling it Soul in Katz. the way that the Wilpons were, and so well, Soul that Katz was is involved. If I'm not mistaken. If I'm mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, Howard, he's deeply involved in Northwell Health. Big money in that. Uh, that used to be the Long Island Jewish Hospital. It's um, true. And, it's true. And I don't he, think he he's wants to mess the around. Who fought, who, he's also the one who was warned directly that Madoff was a fraud and uh, screamed at the woman who told him and uh, ultimately uh, <laughs> let her go about six months later. So a vital part of Met history. Listen, I'll tell you this, and none of us will find out, but there will be a day one time where I still feel those that were invested heavily with Madoff. Um, I'm not talking about the people who lost their pensions because their companies were, because there was a lot of companies that got involved. But if you were involved with Madoff at the level that the Wilpons were, uh, Mm -hmm. I have a hard time believing that you didn't one day look at your returns and say, damn, how does he do this? Because anybody who's in the financial market knows when it's too good to be true. It usually is. But maybe Mike, I'm just being a cynical compl- New York. Mike, they had a compliance officer who they hired to look at these things who told them that it was her opinion that Madoff was a fraud. So this wasn't just a question of known or should have known. This was I, – I, I'll leave it here. Well, the if you, read, if you watch the, Madoff, the Richard Dreyfuss – The question for the Madoff victims doesn't disagree with you. Did you, did you, did you see the Richard Dreyfuss uh, film about Madoff? Did you see that I one did, from a few I years did. ago? Yeah, I mean, they, they, yeah. They, all he had to do, he didn't even, they didn't even ask for his uh, his number, you know, like, it, it was there for the SEC to grab him. He was waiting to get pinched, and uh, it's just crazy. It's crazy stuff, so. Zach Wheeler's a it's Philly. Sure is. Cole Hamels is on the Braves. Howard Megdell's back. By the way, so I have Howard with me. Howard, you uh, you have a ton of stuff that you've done, uh, and let me make sure I, I get it. I get it all out here because I want the, the listeners to get a feel. So you're I co-founder of the Title IX newsletter, editor-in-chief of High mm-hmm. Post High Post Hoops. Now you're a part of the uh, – The Nine, I want to say. The, the Nine the – the, the I-X the newsletter. Not, the Nine, okay. The Nine newsletter. Yeah. I apologize on that. High Post Hoops. All good. 
uh, Sports Illustrated Knicks. You have a new children's book out. You can check it out at Howard McDell on Twitter. I'm, I'm just disappointed that Bud Selig is not part of the 50 Trailblazers that uh, you mentioned in your children's <laughs> book. Because let me tell you something. He, he may not be at the level of uh, Rosa Parks or Muhammad Ali, but let me tell you something. When baseball and ownership uh, lexicon, he's a trailblazer for sure. So, uh, you, uh, it, 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 <laughs> Only in the sense that what he did will never be repeated. A used car salesman from Milwaukee with enough money to own a major league baseball team. We will not see the lights of that again in our lifetimes. All all I miss on this segment, this has been great catching up with. The only thing I miss is that we didn't talk about Guillermo Moto like the old days. And we can't play a clip when when the old podcast, when the sound quality wasn't nearly as good, when we were talking about the Mets collapsing in 2007. I was quoting, uh, you know, when Charlie Sheen got arrested in Wall Street. I was trying to find quotes about the abyss and all that other stuff. So we don't have that today, (laughs) but we have just about about everything else. So anyway – be well. You've been generous with your time. Thanks for the information, and uh, I guess we'll see what happens at this point forward, my friend. We certainly will. But before I let you go, last thing that I want to say, just to take us back to old times, if I can. Yeah, sure. Just, just real quick. There you go. Just a moment. Oh, sorry. Hold on. <laughs> Bring back memories for you? Yeah, it does. It does. That's Good very Guillermo funny. Moda. Guillermo Moda. Uh, listen, the Mets are looking for bullpen help. Um, oh, God. Very possible. <laughs> I'm it's sure he'll come cheap. It's very possible. Listen. It's no more kerosene on the fire than some of the things I've seen come through that. Some of the individuals I've seen come through that bullpen over the last few years. So, you know, we'll leave you at that. Speaking of fire, it's cold out there. Let me go start a fire myself with some of the Mets bullpen memories. You and I could, you and I, I'll let you go. Be well, my friend. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Sounds great, Mike. Thank you. Howard Magdell, at Howard Magdell on Twitter. Good stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed uh, a couple of memory lanes back in the old NYBD podcast days. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. Zach Wheeler, uh, five years from the Philadelphia Phillies. Interesting development for the Yankees, who of course are looking for starting pitching, but just have been more focused on Garrett Cole and to a lesser extent Steven Strasburg. Yankees tried to trade for uh, Wheeler a number of times over the past couple years, but didn't like him for nine figures, didn't like him like the Phillies, Reds, White Sox did, so weren't super in on the bidding. The Mets, of course, Never interested in Wheeler as a free agent. Feel that they replaced him with Marcus Stroman, and we'll see how that works out for the Mets. All right, we're back. Great stuff from Howard McDell going down memory lane. Howard was like one of the first supporters of what I did here back in 2007 when I started on 1240 AM WGBB, had the old NYBD podcast. 
Gotham Baseball, uh, all the different things. Mickey Mantle's Restaurant when I had the show there. So much there. Um, so I, I always am grateful for uh, the support that Howard has given me over the years and, and definitely want to continue to get him on the show when there's an opportunity. So um, uh, Zach Wheeler real quick because I think that's where we're going to end up here. And, and I think that I'm really torn on the whole Zach Wheeler signing because I still think, and I think the Phillies are using the strategy, and I think you'll see that throughout the rest of the offseason, that I think the Mets should have employed where it's so risky signing all these relievers because you don't know what you're going to get. And I saw John Harper said it best. Well, maybe the Mets go out now and sign Dylan Batances and and uh, Will Harris and maybe Joe Smith or Steve Ciszek. You know, spend basically Zach Wheeler's money if it's out there to be spent and and put it towards relievers. And maybe then you go into the non-tender bin and try to get yourself a Kevin Pillar for center field, you know, component players, because you have a good core of, of, of stars already on the team, and some of them cost-controlled. That's certainly the way that I felt they were going to go all along, but I was hoping as the market developed that they would say, hey, you know, do I really want to go bananas here on relievers that may be as bad as some of the reliever performances that we've seen over the years that, you know, same strategy that Sandy Alderson tried to do. Now, with that said, the Phillies paid for Zach Wheeler about $20 million less than what Jacob deGrom uh, received. And, I, and you heard what I said to Howard. I mean, if deGrom got to the market, I mean, he, I mean the Mets might have been blown away and not been able to even come close to competing on that uh, contract or want to compete on that contract. You know, pitcher contracts are very tricky. They're very risky. And, and Wheeler... Uh, is is obviously a bit of a risk because he has the, uh, the 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 late elbow action, the late arm action, and uh, he's already had injuries. and And I don't know how three, four, and five year you know those years on the contract are going to go. Uh, he's impressed me with how he's developed. Uh, there have been times over the last couple of years he's been every bit as good as Degrom. The advanced metrics put him as uh, depending on uh, which sample size you use, put him as high as the top ten pitcher in all of baseball a skush behind guys like Jarrett Cole and Strasburg and Verlander and DeGrom. So you're paying, and the Phillies are paying, saying, hey, you may be bad in the sense where you may be more of a three or four, uh, but I'm going to pay you a little bit more than, and the White Sox even went higher, and he turned them down to be closer to his to the East Coast so that he could be you know, where his fiance, his future wife, uh, was comfortable. Um, but I'm paying you a little bit more because I think you can be better. I'm not going to give you Strasburg, Jared Cole money. That'd be crazy. DeGrom didn't even get that. But I'm going to give you a lot more because I think I'm going to make out on this because I think you're going to be closer to DeGrom than you are going to be you know, a number three or a number four starter. And there's no guarantee that's going to happen. And I think if you have DeGrom on your staff, you're less likely to want to risk a, uh, you know, spend on a risky contract like Wheeler. Um, and I'm not going to be like I've seen some people with sour grapes saying, well, you know, let's start tearing Wheeler down. What I will say is fact. Wheeler was had an ERA a hell of a lot closer to five than three uh, as late as August. Uh, I gave you the numbers earlier in the offseason where, you know, games against Washington and Atlanta and the Yankees, Wheeler didn't uh, pitch that well. Wheeler does... Uh, struggle a little bit against left-handed pitchers. 
Uh, Wheeler does do a lot worse on the road than he does at City Field. These are facts. You can look at last year's splits. So I don't expect, and it's funny how you hear the media say, well, you know, when Wheeler goes to another team, he's, they're going to uncover these these things that analytics are are gonna gonna show, and you know, there's gonna be another gear. If that was the case, and maybe it is, don't you think he would have investigated that already? Don't you think maybe the improvement he's made over the last two years is part because he himself is working on those things? It's not like there's this treasure trove of secrets that other teams has that nobody else could even investigate on their own. I mean, come on, let's let's get real. Is it damaging for him to go to the Phillies? Is it a risk for the Mets? Sure. But let's remember something, and you heard what Andy Martino said in that clip. They felt when they when they acquired Marcus Stroman at the deadline and tried to trade Wheeler, but decided to keep him because the return wasn't worth. You know, the draft pick was probably just as good uh, as them keeping him going for it than whatever return they were getting on the open market. We don't know what they were going to get. Everyone's like, "Well, they should have traded him." Well, you don't know what they were getting offered. Is Harrison Bader, if that was actually true, is Harrison Bader better than a draft pick? I don't know. I don't. I, I'm. I mean, we don't know who the draft pick is. I'm not. Nothing. None of the names that came out tickled me to death. So you know, I'm going to trust that Brody Van Wagenen did his due diligence. And now you have to look at the Mets rotation, where with Wheeler and a Wheeler that was trending towards the Grom, was something really exciting and really special. If the Wheeler you saw down the stretch in September with a sub two ERA was the guy you were going to get for the majority of 2020. And I'm skeptical that that would be the case, but let's say that that was going to be a special guy. But more realistically, you were going to get the guy that you saw in 2019 that had moments where, you know, he went to Atlanta and got hit hard a couple of times. He was the guy that, you know, the day after the Mets lost a tough extra inning game at home to the Braves on a Friday night, that on that Saturday night, he put the Mets in a 5 nothing hole. That's the guy that's that I think at times that's going to happen. And that, good luck at Citizens Bank Park. It's not going to be an easy park when the wind, you know, in the summer when it's humid and the ball's flying. You think those fly balls at City Field that die at the warning track are going to die out there in Citizens Bank Park? I do not think so. So remember that. So anyway, the Mets are trying to replace not necessarily Zach Wheeler, because in their opinion, they've done that with Marcus Stroman, who very well could be as good as Wheeler. And who knows, maybe he has a big walk year because he's a free agent next year. And they know what they have in Syndergaard, and at the very least, they're hoping they get par with Syndergaard, uh, with, with advanced, which advanced metrics indicate is the same as Wheeler. Um, and then you have DeGrom, who's elite, even though he was a skush less this year than his first Cy Young year in 2018. You know DeGrom is your ace, he's your anchor. And Mats is a guy that could be very solid five, but occasionally could give you two-three type of performance. Maybe as he matures, hopefully you get more top-of-the-rotation performances, but he's not a top-of-the-rotation guy. The the really, the guy you're replacing is Jason Vargas, and that's not hard to do. And John Harper wrote about this today, and I said this uh, back uh, as, as recently as September, as early as September. Seth Lugo's the wild card because Seth Lugo is the guy that I believe with the, the four or five different pitches uh, with an opportunity to prove himself, and he's done that as a reliever. He's gone out there and proved himself to be the kind of guy that could put the work in and be elite with a chance to really put himself in a position where he can make some money when he's a free agent. Not that you can't make money as a reliever, 
but you certainly can make much bigger money as Zach Wheeler proved as a starter. You know, a guy like that could be dangerous. And you're asking him to be, uh, if he is as good, gives you uh, from a wins above replacement of about two wins this year out of the bullpen. He gives you that out of the rotation. That's well better than what Vargas gave you, which was about a win, win and a half he was on pace for. So your rotation's on par. Yes, your bullpen's weaker. We talked about that. But there's no guarantee that uh, even with Lugo in the bullpen and maybe a Tanner Roark in the rotation, that you're any better because you still need to add bullpen pieces that are going to be tricky. And if Edwin Diaz doesn't get better, you're, you're going to have major issues in the bullpen. And I don't know if Seth Lugo, who has shown to have issues with going back-to-back or going four out of five days, as good as he is in the bullpen, if that's what they need out of that, that position. I really do. So to me, this is a blow today because he went to the Phillies. Zach Wheeler went to the Phillies, and that's a blow. And I really wanted to see the Mets try to get him to stay. At 80 to $100 million, I'd have more of a gripe, and I'd be more angry at this, uh, this organization for not making a push. I don't even think they would have made a push at that, but I would have expected them to make a harder push. But they probably knew this was getting well north of 100. And if the White Sox, I don't know what the final number is, if the White Sox had, had been the choice, it would have been north of 118. I can't criticize them. This is Patrick Corbin money. I did not think he was going to get Patrick Corbin money. He got Patrick Corbin money. God bless Zach Wheeler. That's, the, that's what you do. You put time in, you work, you execute, you win, you get paid. That's what this is all about. And you can't begrudge somebody like that. So uh, not to fear. I don't think that this is a, a death knell to the 2020 uh, Mets season. It's going to be competitive at least. The Mets are going to have to make moves. Uh, Steve Cohen or no Steve Cohen. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see as we get closer to the winter meetings what this Mets team will do, what Brody Van Wagenen's plan is. He talked about value, and I think he's going to be trying to go out there and find players uh, that maybe are undervalued assets that we're not even thinking about, that have some untapped potential that maybe their analytics department is looking at. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, what does that mean for this show? What that means is uh, we'll be back with, you know, the winter meetings start on Sunday night, basically. We pushed up this show because of the news today um, uh, so that, you know, I could come to you and really, you know, get this information and, and, and talk to you about uh, fresh information. Uh, the winter meetings will probably be more reactionary, not so much guest-driven, but I am working on a couple of guests that, that I'm trying to see if I can get going. Uh, I will react. I will come with podcasts. The plan is to do that. I don't want to do podcasts uh, without really seeing how the news develops. And, I, and being that they're out in San Diego, the meetings, Things are going to happen overnight, so those podcasts will go stale very quickly. So be patient with me over the next week because we're going to be more reactionary, similar to like today, which today wasn't planned, but more reactionary to the news so that I give you the freshest content and we're, we'll be able to react very quickly to uh, any news that the Mets make or not make. Uh, but for sure, we'll, you know, after the, the meetings are over, have a podcast to recap. And before you know, it'll be Christmas, and yeah, I'll take some time off for Christmas, uh, but we'll continue to try to bring you something every week. Expect normally on a Sunday for a podcast to drop. But now we have to be a little bit more fluid because of the way the news and the hot stove. 
and things like that. So anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I want to thank our friend Howard Megdell for joining me at Howard Megdell on Twitter and Will Pond's Follies, the book, as well as a bunch of other stuff that you could check out if you just go to Howard's Twitter and see him. You could check me out, of course, at the thetalkamitspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And of course, you could get this show on Apple Podcasts, the preferred way to listen to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast soon. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.